Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Fantastic Mr. Fox, the new Wes Anderson animated movie. Joining me at the movie last night and in the Slate studio today is Jonah Weiner, Slate's pop critic. Hi, Jonah. Hi. How's it going? Pretty good. So, um, so yeah, let's get rolling and spoiling. Um, let's start with a little bit of a plot summary background on the movie. Well, let's, actually, let's just start out by saying, did you like it? I did. I did. I think we both really liked it, uh, despite the guy behind us who was laughing at every single line of dialogue, which usually makes me just hate a movie on principle. Yeah, that is kind of disquieting, right? It sort of, it sort of <laughs> interferes with your enjoyment. I mean, how can you decide what to laugh at if there's just some maniac behind you laughing at everything? But in general, the audience was, was pretty lively and, and pretty into it. They were. And it was also interesting, uh, at least anecdotally, this, this audience, there were a lot of kids there who uh, a lot of them were applauding at the end. Yeah, we had two little kids in front of us, about probably eight or nine or something, who seemed completely delighted and absorbed the whole time. So I want as closely as possible to recreate the exact conversation we had in the subway on the way home because I just I thought it was great and we pretty much covered anything I would like to do in the podcast. But let's start off first by summarizing the story. Um, it's based on a Roald Dahl, I guess you'd call it a novel, sort of a, a chapter book that's about, I don't know, 70 pages long or something like that from the early 70s called Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and it's considerably embroidered from that story. You haven't read the book, right? I haven't. Basically, um, there's a lot of uh, adding of characters and adding of adventures and some condensation. There's four kids. The Fox couple has four kids in the book who are just kind of the nameless Fox kids, and they're condensed into this one one son, um, voiced by Jason Schwartzman. But let's let's give it an overall um, plot summary. Yeah, well, so uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, I think he just goes by Fox. Did he have a first name, or is he just sort of Fox? They call him Foxy. It yeah, seems Foxy. to be pretty much all of his name. Foxy Fox, uh, played played appropriately by George Clooney, uh, is this, uh, when we first see him, he's with his wife, who's voiced by Meryl Streep, and they are uh, looting this farm for uh, poultry. They're stealing chickens. Oh, no, no, they're stealing squab. Uh, and uh, they get caught. And Meryl Streep, uh, her character, whose name was Felicity Fox, uh, announces that she's pregnant. And so he vows to go straight. And then the rest of the movie is him kind of breaking that vow and returning to his life of hen-stealing crime. Right. So that squab scene is basically the prologue after which you zip ahead. I think they say um, two years later, seven fox years, 12 fox years or something like that. So time passes faster for the foxes. And um, George Clooney's character, Mr. Fox, has become a newspaper columnist. He's reading this kind of like Woodland Animals Gazette or something as as, as the, the movie proper begins. And uh, but he's itching for his old life as a poultry thief and and can't get away from his desire to um, to go steal some chickens. And so the next segment of the movie, he does slip back into his life of crime, accompanied by his opossum buddy. Um, what's the opossum buddy's name? Wait, let me... Kylie. Kylie, that's right. Who's voiced by um, by Wally Walidarski. And uh, so the two of them hold up a few chicken farms. And we should also mention this is very important to the structure of the movie that there are three big farms located close to the to the fox's hole, um, owned by. Um, Bugus, Bunce, and Bean? Are those exactly. their names? Bogus, Bunce, Bunce, and Bean are the names of the three farmers, which is straight from Dahl as well. And uh, and they all grow different things. One is a turkey farmer, one's a chicken farmer, and one of them grows apples and makes hard cider, alcoholic cider. Right. right? So these are the three things that they're engaged in looting, and these become their three arch enemies during the course of the movie. So they loot a few farms, and there's some really great high-style heist sequences in this first third of the movie. 
And then the three farmers get together and decide to crack down, that they're going to they're route this fox. And they proceed to dig away his entire hill with three tractors um, so that the fox family is forced to dig this underground tunnel. And then there we get some really great animated kind of cutaway-style cross-section scenes where you see the foxes doing speed digging and making this, um, this tunnel structure underground. Right. I thought that that was a, a reference, uh, among other things, to uh, The Life Aquatic when we see the sort of the cutaway of the, uh, of the boat. That uh, Bill, that Steve Zissou uh, and his crew sail around on, and they do that sort of diorama, sort of cross section of the boat. Right. And there were some similar shots. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, I think well, Wes tunnels. Anderson has basically said as much, but he's really obsessed with with tunnels and tunneling, and you know, creating these underground superstructures. And there's some great stuff in, in this movie with that, which we were surmising has to be drawn animation. I mean, the rest of the animation is stop motion, and I think Wes Anderson was pretty stringent about sticking with old school stop motion animation without computer um, augmentation. But this has to be drawn right when they're when they're tunneling underground. It'd be really impressive if it weren't. I wouldn't know how they'd. I don't know they'd how they would make off. the little puppets dig the actual dirt and be moving their paws through the dirt. But I, I read a piece. Of, we'll link to it on the uh, on the the blog page. But there's a, there's a great piece about the animation techniques that were used and the sort of the amount of dolls that they took. I think there's something like. 600,000 individual frames that had to be shot for this movie. So that's how many setups they had to get through and 500 puppets that had to be sewn in different scales and sizes. And, and all of that is kind of visible in a great way in the, in the animation that, that results. Yeah. Well, we were, we were saying on the ride back that there were sort of details that we'd each read about, uh, you know, kind of whether it was uh, these tiny little push pins that had been made to stick in a bulletin board in some office scene, and we'd miss that, or some cutlery made out of uh, what was it? Uh, out of deer hooves. Out of deer hooves that someone holds aloft in one scene. We miss that too. I mean, there's such an abundance of just tiny little details. Yeah, your eyes kind of don't know where to go in the frame, but it's a very pleasurable not not knowing where yeah, to go. For sure. Uh, and, and one interesting thing is that when you talk about sort of the, the arduousness that's involved in animating a movie like this, what was funny to me was I thought that this had a kind of looseness and spryness that Wes Anderson's movies typically don't, uh, despite this incredibly painstaking process uh, you know, through which the, the animation was made. Yeah, well, I mean, I know you've written on Slate before you, that you have your reservations about Wes Anderson's live-action movies, right? And and I, I share them, although I always try to bring an open spirit to his movies because I think he's an interesting filmmaker. Mm-hmm, but sure. he's been starting to lose me with the last few movies just precisely because he's so he's such a monomaniac. He's such a control freak about his frames looking a certain way and every texture and every color being perfect. And it does seem in some ways to shut out human feeling, which might be fine if he was trying to make um, – make films in which human emotion is not as important as it is, but given that he's also drawn to really melodramatic family stories and, you know, that he likes to kill off his characters and have their siblings mourn them. And, I mean, he wants to tell stories that require a lot from the audience emotionally and from the characters emotionally, and yet he always wants to have you at arm's distance in these perfectly aestheticized zones, you right. know? And and it almost seems like, well, now he's he's found a way to escape that, which is to do stop-motion animation. Yeah, well, well I mean, two, I, I sort of had two thoughts about that. One is uh, that it, it can... Get, I, I sort of found it initially kind of winning and charming when I just first encountered his movies, and you can't help but be sort of 
taken aback the first time you see a Wes Anderson movie because they are so so sort of fully realized aesthetically. But but I found it initially winning that he sort of treats characters as though they're just another set of kind of pretty objects in these tableau of very pretty objects. Uh, and of you know sort of over the course of his movies, I found that more and more sort of sticky and irritating, uh, especially because of what you're talking about. You're sort of snapped back to this surface kind of aesthetic reaction when he also wants you to have a deeper emotional reaction. That really bothered me in Darjeeling Limited, I think, and in in The Life Aquatic, that both of those movies were about essentially mourning family members, you know, about like the son that dies in in Life Aquatic or the father that dies in in Darjeeling Express. And yet they all seem to be mainly about luggage and, you know, the texture of curtains and the the quality of of whatever, like cutlery on a train. And and here, of course, uh, he he sort of uh, escapes that. Well, he doesn't escape it. To me, it wasn't as bothersome that he treats his characters like pretty objects because they're puppets and they are really pretty objects. And uh, I mean, we should just talk for a second about about the the puppets there uh, uh Mr. Fox wears a corduroy suit cut from the exact same uh corduroy that uh Wes Anderson actually gets from his tailor uh I can made... just I can just hear the Wes Anderson backlashers by the billion rolling their eyes at that detail Sure uh, no I mean, and and there's plenty to roll your eyes at but but I, but overall I, I found it just kind of impressive I mean just those puppets are just really beautiful what was one one thing that was interesting about the puppets was that there uh, this goes back to maybe the sort of the stringent realism that he made maybe wanted to bring to this totally fantastical world but but the, the characters the animated characters faces aren't wildly expressive it isn't like an Ardman thing where they sort of have big eyes that kind of you know pop out of their skulls and kind of their mouths are just no you know, it's just giant. the opposite it, you're really aware at every moment that they're dolls that yeah. they're static figures that are being I mean he wants to leave it's almost like he wants to leave the hand in the frame that just moved the doll to a different position I mean that yeah. never happens but you definitely have the feeling at all times that they're these stiff dolls that are moving. And so when there's a close-up, for example, he doesn't like them to blink. I was reading about this in the production notes. This is kind of a given in animation that to avoid your animation looking crappy and like it's just a doll, you have them always moving in some way even when they're not um, saying anything. And Wes Anderson didn't want that. He hmm. wanted them to be still when they weren't saying anything. I mean, they get movement in the fur. There's that, you know, the fact that the fur is real makes it always sort of move a little bit in the right. wind. But but essentially you're always aware that they're dolls. And in that sense, it kind of reminded me of the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special, yeah. which I used to be so fascinated with as a child and I think what used to fascinate me about it is that they really looked like dolls and you almost felt like you could reach into the TV and play with them you know and it seemed like he was trying to get that tactile quality to his puppets as well for sure Okay, let's take a quick break and uh, talk about our sponsor, and then we'll, we'll get back to the movie. Um, as regular listeners know, Audible.com has been the, uh, the podcast sponsor at Slate for over a year now, and um, it's a great service. Um, they're offering a deal for Slate listeners right now where if you sign up through our website for a membership, you get a free audiobook, which you can keep even if you don't decide to keep your membership. And the place to do that is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So we tend to uh, recommend in, in each spoiler podcast a something that Audible has that's thematically related to our movie, and there's uh, the perfect one in this in this case for this movie. They actually have Roald Dahl reading his own stories, a bunch of his own stories, including the fantastic Mr. Fox. So if you go on there, it's called the, the Roald Dahl Audio Collection. collection. Uh, there's a bunch of other titles with him, too. But this particular title, if you download this one, you'll get all these stories. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach. I mean, these are basically the big Roald Dahl stories. Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Enormous Crocodile, and The Magic Finger, which I don't know. So, um, so yeah, Roald Dahl is a complete pleasure to read, I should say. I reread Fantastic Mr. Fox yesterday on the way to this movie. It takes about an hour to read it, and it's just, it's just a wonderful story. 
so we left off talking about the visuals of the movie, which for me are the main reason to see it. Although, I mean, it is also a moving tale that's that's well told. But really, this is completely a movie about color and texture and you know and puppets. Um, and and that points at this Wes Anderson division that I wanted to discuss that we mentioned a little bit earlier in connection with the Life Aquatic and so forth, where. You know, you've got this sort of heavy, emotionally heavy subject matter, usually having to do with family relationships. And you've also got this very high level of, you know, aesthetic refinement. And it tends to be the case that your eyes wander off to the Louis Vuitton embossed luggage and you kind of forget about the dead father or whatever you're supposed to be caring about. And so there's a family relationship that's that's heavy duty and important in this movie as well. And I wanted to hear whether you thought it fell fell victim to that Wes Anderson problem. Well, I sort of I, I think that it's um it's it's a family relationship specifically he's been preoccupied since pretty much Rushmore with uh, this kind of, I don't know, this tension between a father and a son. And I've never really been impressed with sort of Wes Anderson's insights into those relationships. And I thought in Darjeeling Limited, it was just entirely just kind of sketchy. We just hear that the that the main character's dad has died and they haven't spoken to each other since. And it, their relationship is just never really unpacked or kind of explored that interestingly. What's funny about this one is that it's co-written by Noah Baumbach, who did Squid and the Whale, which I found was like a really, really kind of wrenching look at, you know, at a that are just kind of messed up dad and and the sons who kind of are wrestling with what they're going to inherit from him. Uh, but that said, in this one, you have uh, Ash, who's fantastic Mr. Fox's uh, son, played uh, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, who's kind of wimpy where his dad was a great athlete and he wants to be a really great athlete, but he just doesn't quite have it. And his cousin, Christofferson, who is voiced by Wes Anderson's brother, Eric, uh, shows up and is just kind of great in all the ways that Ash isn't. He does this kind of perfect – one of the great early scenes establishing his kind of physical you know, superiority. Uh, he does this dive into a bucket of water and there's this dainty little splash because he right. just executes it so perfectly. And the water that splashes up kind of makes a perfect shape. Yeah, this nice little kind of fleur de lis shape. Um, There's also that great game of whack bat. The, 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 this is a super Wes Anderson moment. It's like something out of Rushmore, actually, where this sport is invented. There's this sport that all the foxes or all the animals play with each other that's called whack bat. That's some weird combination of baseball, cricket, and I don't know, just insanity that has yeah. crazy rules about pitching a Track flaming pine cone at a, at a bat. And then, anyway, it's, it's a very funny scene. And so it's also established that Christopherson is this whiz at whack bat. He's great at that. And, and, and George Clooney's character is too. And Ash just totally blows. And so it's just kind of the, you set up this kind of tension between Ash being jealous of Christopherson, who, uh, Foxy Fox, <laughs> who, uh, who George Clooney's character, uh, clearly kind of takes a shine to in a way that he doesn't to, uh, to his own son. Um, but anyway, so you have this issue, this kind of tension between them but i thought here it was just no more than a comic device it's just for some laughs we just sort of see george clooney sliding jason schwartzman in various ways and it's just kind of we're not meant to care very deeply about it we're not meant to kind of feel for jason schwartzman's character that much it's just, it's mostly a comic device uh and i thought that was kind of a, a perfect level to kind of you know just sort of leave leave it there I'm not completely sure how much Wes Anderson did or didn't want you to care about it because he does – I mean the closest the movie comes, the, the, the most of a concession that it makes to really conventional, sentimental, um, you know, I don't know what to call it, just, just square filmmaking is when Jason Schwartzman's character saves his, 
his cousin, the one that he's been in this intense rivalry with, right. and manages to use his smallness, the fact that he's physically small, as a as a way to get into this grating and, and save him. And I thought that movie, that moment in the movie was was kind of conventional, and that we were supposed to kind of tear up about it. And it was one of the movies, the moments that didn't work as well for me. But given that it came in this onrush of really delightful and um, beautifully imagined chase sequences with great physical gags, it was it was something I was happy to let go by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the physical gags, just one quick thing I wanted to say is I think uh, I'm sure you know commenters or something will tell me if I'm wrong, but this feature, uh, this movie features this great dance scene where all the animals have kind of busted into these incredibly uh, rich storehouses of you know livestock and stuff that they're gonna that they're gonna eat, and there's this long dance scene scored by Jarvis Cocker, and I thought it was the first time in an Anderson movie that characters have danced, and I just I kind of I really love that, it's just kind of, and it goes back to this sort of newfound looseness that I felt in this in this movie. It's weird because he's, his his movies have such great music, and they're so the soundtracks are so important to them, and a lot of the music is really danceable pop music on the soundtracks. But you're right, characters don't actually burst into dance because that would just somehow be too messy of a thing to do in, in a Wes For Anderson sure. movie. But as soon as it's a doll that you have to move into ten thousand different positions to make it dance, I guess that pleases him. But yeah, the dancing scenes are really great, um, and the, the dolls move sort of strangely in those scenes too. They're not jointed in a way that's particularly realistic. No, and so you're very aware of the puppetry in those scenes in a way that's nice. Let's talk about the ending before we wrap up, because the ending is kind of mystifying. And um, as you as you mentioned as we were walking out, it's it's curiously depressing, or at least it seems to be pointing towards some kind of commentary that's kind of depressing. Um, even though it's it's also happy in the sense that you know all the people that we want to make it make it, and they're happily dancing in a supermarket full of food, so they're never going to starve. But um, right, well, we should say how they get there, right? Yeah, so, the uh, supermarket. So the the three kind of mean farmers who have just kind of escalated uh, uh, escalated their attempts to get the fox, who's just been stealing from them for so many years has gone from, you know, dynamite to uh, trying to flood these tunnels that the animals live in. And finally... Uh, and staking it out with snipers. So there's like right. 180 100... snipers surrounding their hole. <laughs> right. All these snipers and just kind of these insane efforts to try and get them. And they're successful to the extent that they haven't killed any of the animals, but Clooney, and who's become sort of de facto leader of the community of animals, uh, they're all trapped in this like little sewer and they think that they're just going to starve to death. And then Clooney kind of, you know, saves the day by uh, discovering this one tunnel that leads to the, the middle of this big box supermarket, uh, and that's kind of the the final triumphant moment is when he says, "Look at you know here we're not going to starve because of this supermarket." But it's weird, right? And we were sort of having a hard time figuring it out because what he says is sort of you know kind of like, "Well, uh, the food doesn't taste as good, and it isn't as fresh, uh, and it's full of preservatives, and it's full of additives." But hey, it's really convenient. And it seemed like this kind of funny. Uh, what I said to you is, this is not going to play well at the Park Slope Food Co-op. Uh, it's an it's, anti-locavore ending. Yeah, it, it really is. And well, because there's also the the implication that they're never going to be able to do anything except tunnel between the sewer and the supermarket. Right? They're staked out forever. And there was even some moment earlier where. The farmers say bogus bouncing bean or staking them out, and they say, well, they have to come up sometime because animals need fresh air or something like that. But, right. you know, it's almost like the ending is some kind of affirmation that they don't, and they yeah. can live in this completely artificial environment. Right. And the very last shot, which in a way is really uplifting, but in another way is strangely confining, is of this really sterile white-tiled supermarket that looks completely different from anything else we've seen in the movie, when everything's been very organic and natural and rich and, like, ochre-colored. And suddenly they're in this sterile white-tiled supermarket, and they look really tiny. It's a really long shot. And you see these little vulnerable animals kind of dancing on the white floor. It's right. a weird, weird ending. It was actually a really sly and really smart way to end it because you sort of – I don't know. I'm trying to think of another time when there's been kind of a, a, an ending that functions so well that oscillates between the happy ending and sad ending like that one does. Well, the whole the whole movie has had this, um, this ongoing theme that – 
the animals are sort of divided between their civilized self, the, the part of them that can, you know, publish newspapers and create little communities underground and so forth, and the part of them that are just wild animals. And this is said again and again throughout the movie. It's this ongoing theme. There's also a really funny running joke that whenever they eat, right, they're sitting down in their perfectly tailored corduroy Wes Anderson suits, but every time they sit down to a plate of food, they eat it like, right, 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 right. and they just snarf it down in a few seconds while growling, and it always gets a big laugh. From yeah, the no, it, right, that, right. That's one of the earliest kind of ways that that duality is kind of, you know, staged, but uh, right, it, it does sort of, it, it, the, the script p- posits this split, right, between kind of the biological imperatives of being an animal and, right, the, the social, socialized uh, kind of comportment that they've, uh, well, you know, uh, th- that's led them to wear, you know, corduroy suits and write, you know, newspaper op-eds and stuff like that. Uh, and the big climax, uh, the big climactic fight involves George Clooney rallying everyone by saying, okay, you know, you, Badger, you're a really great lawyer, but forget about that. What are your kind of innate species-specific uh, traits and, you know, uh, and skills? And he does that to everyone in the town. And so it's somehow like by forgetting their sort of socialized selves, they kind of are able to somehow beat the, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's any real, you know, kind of uh, subtext to that, but it's just, it, it 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 was this kind of weird persistent thing that does seem to feed into the ending in a little way because there at the end uh in, in kind of having the final scene be them discovering the supermarket uh it's sort of they are now kind of uh, discovering and settling to this life that is totally abstracted from agriculture and farming and whatever and sort of like these animals being kind of divorced from their i don't know but of, they got there by being their animal selves. So I, yeah, think, I so, think Anderson does want to preserve that tension at the end. He must because it's not the ending of the book. The ending of the book is actually just the big feasts that the animals have after they tunnel their way through to the stores of, of turkey and chicken and so forth. And then you see Bogus Bounce and Bean, the thwarted farmers, sitting at the top of their manhole essentially forever waiting for right. the animals to come out. So I, I guess wonder if it, are they opening it up for a sequel? Because right, because the whole thing, right, the refrain from George Clooney the whole time is uh, and, and, and we should say really quickly, uh, Meryl Streep plays his wife and I thought that her role was a little underwritten it's just sort of kind of this stand by your man kind of wife role yeah the mere fact that we're uh, only saying at the end of this spoiler special oh yeah Meryl Streep plays his wife she it. should be stealing any movie she's in um, but his refrain to her she says you know my god like why do you keep jeopardizing our safety by going out and you know and, and, and doing these thefts and he says I'm a wild animal I'm a wild animal so how how can we avoid a sequel where the you know the inevitable tension between George Clooney being a wild animal I mean he's not going to be satisfied by going to the supermarket right it has to be like back to the land Fantastic Fox too right right Jonah thanks so much for joining me for this movie and for this late spoiler special thanks for having me for Slate.com I'm Dana Stevens it's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.